Hello and welcome to the Educator Escape Podcast. My name is Seth Tripp and today is Wednesday, June 27th, 2018. I hope your week has started off well. One of my good friends, John, came down from Chicago, who is an Indians fan, to come and watch the Cardinals and the Indians square off on Monday and Tuesday. So had a couple late nights this week, but we had a lot of fun. I hope that you're having a good start to your week as well. If you have not gone and subscribed to the podcast, please go and do so on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on Spotify and CastBox. Last time on the podcast, I talked with college and career counselor from Rinder High School, Julie Kampschrader, about the ever-changing world of the college system. I hope that you will go back and listen to that if you haven't already. If you have not read the blog posts, on educatorscape.com that I posted about not letting life get in the way of the good stuff. Go check that out at educatorscape.com. I'm sure that you will be uh, blessed by that. Friday on the podcast, Citizen Stewart will be joining me to discuss the ramifications of the changes to the AP World History Test for minority students, why public education may not be the best place for students to become educated, about how he is getting his message of activism and education on Twitter out there. I hope that you will tune in. Today on the podcast, Alex Terrence, who taught AP World History at Rittner High School last year and is now the new assistant principal at Rittner Middle School, talks to me about the coming changes and how these changes can impact teachers and students alike. Here is my interview with Alex Terrence. here with brand new assistant principal of Rittner Middle School, Alex Terrence. Hi Alex, how you doing? Good, how are you? Doing well. Alex was the uh, AP World History teacher over at Rittner High School. He's transitioning into his his first year at the middle school level. He is braver than I. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't do middle schoolers, so you are uh, a brave soul, sir. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. So we're going to kind of sit a little bit on one of the hot topic issues that's going on in AP World History right now, which is the the change of the test. Before we do that, I want to kind of give people a little bit of a, uh, a background about, about you. Could you tell us your journey education, how you got to where you are today? Well, I uh, grew up in Rochester, New York, and I was very fortunate to go to a great school called Honeyway Falls Lima High School. And at that school, I had a number of fantastic history teachers. My dad's a history buff, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bug. You either catch it or you don't. And, you know, when it comes to history, I, I definitely caught the bug. So I enjoyed all my history classes. I knew I wanted to go to school for something that would be different every day. You know, the idea of working in a cubicle farm kind of terrified me. And, you know, going to school with history, you kind of walk out of it after four years and you kind of need to decide, okay, now what am I going to do with this? Am I going to be a historian and write books and research or am I going to, you know, try to pass that love of history onto other people? And so, so moving into schooling, uh, you know, I went to St. John Fisher College, again in Rochester. I got my bachelor's degree in adolescent social studies with kind of a focus in special education. And then, you know, I started teaching right away. Uh, I actually got my first job at the school that I student taught at. I went, I student taught at James Monroe High School, which is in the Rochester City School District. A good name for a 
for a history teacher to yes, have. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's funny how many kids had no idea who James Monroe was. But yeah, so, you know, teaching there for uh, four years, I did some high school, mostly middle school at James Monroe. And, you know, middle school is a niche. It, it's, it, it's something that, you know, if you love it, you love it. And if you don't like it, you know, you know, middle of the road with middle school, you either love it or hate it. So, yeah. and I, and I did find a passion for it and I really did uh, enjoy teaching middle school. When I moved to St. Louis, I taught at an arts academy in the city, uh, Grand Center Arts Academy. It's a charter school. Again, a great place to work with kids that had a, multiple, a multitude of ways that they could express what they are learning. So, you know, there were kids that sang songs and did interpretive dances and, you know, wrote poetry and painted murals. And, and it was really a great place to kind of showcase that project-based learning, the idea that, you know, there's multiple ways that kids can show that they're learning something. And it's not just you know, uh, a worksheet or a test that does that. So, and then uh, I started up with uh, Rittner in 2015. Uh, funny story, I didn't even know the district existed okay. <laughs> prior to applying there. Like, I didn't know it was an actual thing, and I certainly couldn't pronounce it correctly. Um, you know, well, the, how, did, how did you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, it's always the Rittenauer. Rittenauer. Yeah, yeah Rittenauer. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I had a, a friend that recently retired from the district, and uh, Gene Schober, um, Shout out to Jean. She kind of introduced me to the the district and said, you know, this would be a great place for you to work. You know, and it's it's such an awesome place because, you know, there's no racial majority. So you got a lot of diverse students. You know, one of my first years there, I was just blown away by, you know, kids saying, hey, can I call my parents? Yes. Go ahead. Phones over there. And all of a sudden they're speaking Vietnamese or, you know, I have a number of students that uh, come from Africa and, you know, they start speaking a Bantu dialect at the moment you know, they call their parents at home and it's just a really great group. The nice thing about diversity is that you really get a range of experiences and that's kind of where where I've worked. And then now I'm transitioning over to the middle school assistant principal position. Again, a big change for me and it's going to be a steep learning curve because there's a lot of things that, you know, as a teacher, you don't necessarily get to peek behind the curtain, but now, you know, you're going to be asked to kind of run the show. So it's going to be a, a, a big difference for me. When talking with people, you know, like other people in the social studies department they talk very highly of you so it's no wonder that you got in over there because it sounds like people love you around here uh how did you how did you get out here you know moved out here i didn't know the area didn't know you know a whole lot about what's going on but in terms of employment rochester has one city school district and it has a limited number of suburban districts surrounding it and so when you go to apply for a job in rochester you know, obviously a brand new hire out of college is going to be working in the city school district because the ones out in the counties, you know, if you apply to a place, you know, I'll, I'll give you like equivalents out here, like a Webster Groves, a Kirkwood, a Rockwood, you know, if you're looking to get into those schools in Rochester, you're looking at probably competing with five to 700 other applicants for each position. And so, you know, you're really going to have to go through the trenches in working in the city school district. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not dissing city school districts. I love working in, in high-needs areas. You know, probably the best part is that you go to work every day knowing that you're you're not a luxury, you're a necessity. Like, mm -hmm. you have to be there, otherwise these kids aren't going to be able to succeed. But, you know, competing with that number of people for a single social studies position, you know, it's, it's really difficult. And supply and demand. I mean, there's so many colleges around Rochester, New York, that... You know, there's an abundance of people competing for the same position at the basic, you know, first tier pay. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's tough. It's a tough, tough world. Okay. You're teaching history. What's your favorite era event 
kind of specialty area that you like? I really enjoy teaching the Industrial Revolution, you know, looking at not only the inventions, but the impact and the change that happened. And it's a great metaphor for a lot of the things that are going on in our society right now with, you know, we're still reeling from the the internet age and Mm -hmm. what, you know, what the internet means for our society. And so there's so many parallels between what this new technology meant in the 1800s to what this new, you know, app or new video game means in the, in the 21st century. So there's a lot of parallels there. I also really enjoy teaching a lot of the civilizations that people, you know, don't necessarily get a lot of exposure to, you know, the Mauryans, the Gupta, the, the Zhou dynasty of, you know, of China. You know, a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with those dynasties or those empires. And so kind of opening their eyes to the amount of stuff that took place that people have very little knowledge of these days. Is the Zhou, is that the one that... No, that's not the one. I was thinking of the Zhou as the one that people think might be, like, not real and mythical. No, so the one, and I don't even know how to pronounce it, the Shia... Uh, I think yes X-I-A yes that one Um, and I'm terrible you know that's one of the things that we say in world history is that you should care about pronunciation but in terms of learning we're all learning how to pronounce these things and there's no you know know, we mispronounce things all day long but as long as you remember what it is that you are attempting to pronounce like you remember you know their accomplishments and those kinds of things then yeah mispronouncing is we can forgive that I always just say oh I've heard it both ways (laughs) That's, that's that's how I kind of go with that. Of course, then somebody's like, oh, it's actually neither of those. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the funniest one was in the Persian Empire, there's these local regional governors that, that Darius or Darius uh, used to kind of govern the different districts of the Persian Empire. And for the longest time, I was calling them uh, satrapies, satrapies, satrapies. And I went and observed, you know, the, these other teachers. And, and, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, they're Say traps. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so, you know, how many kids are going to be walking around out there going, Satrapis? You know, I, not that it comes up in regular conversation, but they're definitely going to be mispronouncing it because of me. So, oh, I remember when I lived, we lived in Hawaii for three years growing up, and locals would try to give you a hard time sometimes because you're because you're white out there and you're not like hip to the culture and stuff. Oh yeah, and so they like spell something and like, how do you say that? And we, you know. There's one that's like Kapiolani Highway, and so we're like, oh, that makes sense, or Holly uh, Mau Mau, or Mea or whatever, and you get that, and then this one old lady at church was like, P-I-P-E-L-I-N-E, and so my dad's like, oh, it's going to be like some like Hawaiian thing, he's like, Pipeline? She's like, no, Pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for sure. So, teaching world history, I taught world history for one year, and then I moved to St. Louis, and so I didn't teach it anymore. It's probably my favorite class to teach. But there's some changes that are going on here, not next year, but the year after that is when they're going to implement them. And I just hear... I just see videos or I read an article here or there, so I don't know as much as you may know. But what are some of the changes that are coming to the curriculum? So the biggest change is that they're going to be cutting the, cl- uh, the course in half. 
And so when you look at AP world history, it's broken up into six time periods. The Foundations era looks at everything from the Neolithic Revolution to about 600 or 500 uh, BCE. The Classical era is everything from 5 or 600 BCE to 5 or 600 CE, followed up by the post-classical era, which is everything from, you know, depending on what year is, I always say five or 600 because some books and some companies it's, use different markers as their, right. their cutoff for the, the time periods. And then, so it goes from basically five or 600 to 1450 CE. Okay. And so what the proposed cut would do is create a ninth grade class, a pre-AP okay. ninth grade class that would go over the first three time periods and then for time periods uh, four, five, and six, that would become AP World History. And so you, your course would start with 1450 and carry on to present day. And so that's where the main argument is coming from. Uh, and, you know, like, well, every school district has their own scope and sequence. And right. so, you know, you might start with U.S. history in ninth grade and then get a year of world history in 10th grade. There's no guarantee that districts are going to be able to implement that ninth grade class. Right. So moving into, you know, not not next year, but the following year, the 2019-2020 year, the course would start at 1450 and end at present day. So I taught last year, I taught at Winfield, and they do U.S. history in 10th grade and uh, world history in 9th grade. So in that school district, they're going to have to flip-flop everything if they want to have kids take the, the AP test at all. How many classes did you teach of AP World this year? Uh, this year I had three. Okay. Uh, last year I had four. Um, and then next year there's only two. So it's actually okay. dwind dwindling, which it is interesting because for a number of years, AP World History was the most quickly growing course that AP offered for since its implementation. Was okay. The fastest growing course that they offer. Okay. So if we go to this different model is is some of the idea that maybe maybe they maybe it's an overall trend in world history and so maybe they see that at least in their eyes that if we do this pre thing the people interested and then maybe they funnel into the big program you know i think probably the biggest focus is on you know the amount of time you know when i tell parents that we have to cover 10,000 years of history in about 150 days so that we have time to review for the test. You know, a lot of jaws drop. Um, I had a teacher that, um, kind of a mentor of mine, um, Eric Hahn, who just retired from Ladue, he would always liken it to drinking water from a fire hose. You know, there's that much information coming at you that it's really difficult to kind of grasp it all. And so, you know, as a teacher, you have to do a lot of high impact lessons lessons that kids are going to remember when it comes time to sit down for the test and you don't know what they're going to ask about mm -hmm. out of those 10,000 years. I mean, there's key concepts and there's, you know, themes that, that they focus on. You have a framework for what they might ask you questions on. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I teach AP US also. Right. And AP US, we had a question on the final exam about, there was a, a, a song from the 1960s. 
50s or 60s called Ticky Tacky Little Boxes. Who teaches about a song from the 1950s or 60s about Ticky Tacky Little Boxes? I mean, you know, I mean, now we 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 teach about you know the rise of suburban suburbia and right. you know and 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 that's part of it. But you know, they will throw curveballs at you, and you know whether it's the DBQ about cricket or. You know what, what have you? But they're going to throw some curveballs at you. It's not like you can just teach the class, tell kids what they need to know, and then have them they'll remember it. You have to hit high impact lessons that they're going to recall later on. It's difficult because of the you know the the ten thousand years. And so the big the big deal there is that you know they're saying, and it's a logical thing. Okay, ten thousand years is way too difficult. The test focuses a lot on skills. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have to teach them the history, but you need to teach them how to write. Because 60% of their test is based on their ability to write. And so you're teaching them how to write thesis statements for social studies because it's different than English. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I always get a kick out of showing English teachers the, the essays that I have kids write because they freak. I mean, like, this thesis is disgusting. You know, where's your introductory paragraph? Why are they just citing documents and, you know, uh, know, like, what's this identify and explain pattern that I keep seeing in these essays? And that's, you know, that's part of it, is that you've got 10,000 years to cover and you've got a crap load of skills that you've got to teach kids on and practice repeatedly. I mean, I probably have kids write or grade anywhere between 12 and 16 essays a year. Sounds right. Per class. So you're talking about a significant amount of writing that you have to do for kids, and then you have to give them feedback to be able to grade that and so that they can improve. And so that's the, the mentality behind it. So we get kids, ninth grade, they do this pre-AP U.S. or pre-AP uh, world class. They come into pre, uh, world AP world history, and then they've got all that pre-context, you know, stuff from the first three time periods, and then, you know, you have only three time periods to focus on, and then we can talk about the skills during that time period. Okay. So you talk about you need high-impact lessons for retention. I know I didn't ask you to prepare something, to, but can you give me an example of a, a high-impact lesson and what you, what you mean by that? Off the top of my head, there's a couple of it. And, and you know, I, I did not create these. There's a, a, a whole fabulous group out there on Facebook that, you know, of teachers that that work with each other to share lessons and share ideas and, and talk about all these things. So the Facebook group has been an absolute must-have uh, resource for any new person to the subject area. But two of the lessons that I really appreciated, one of them was, so Islam is so important to the AP World History course because mm-hmm. you know the golden age of Islam impacted all of the stuff that we see in the Renaissance it impacted Columbus's voyage to to cut out the middleman that you know the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. fell uh, I'm sorry the, the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottoman Turks and so they're avoiding you know so there's this spread of Islam through architecture activity in which kids examine architectures and architectural examples from different regions of the world and they have to determine whether or not it's Islam. And then they can see where Islam spread, when it spread to them, uh, or to that region, all based on the buildings and the style of, of architecture in that area. Phenomenal lesson. Another one that we do, and I've altered what time period I use it on, is an autopsy of an empire project that kids work on. And so it's kind of a two-part thing. And this is where we talk about like skills. You know, I have kids that don't know what an obituary is, and I have kids that don't know what an autopsy is. So you kind of have to give that context. 
you know, teach them what the stuff is that you're talking about, and then they can start to create something out of it. So there's an autopsy of an empire project where kids look at celebrating the accomplishments of the empire through an obituary, but also dissecting fictional body that they draw and map out on, on butcher black paper that shows why the empire died. Kind of okay. like, you know, when you do an autopsy on a person, you try to figure out the cause of death. So they're looking at, you know, not only why did the empire rise through celebrating the stuff that they did, you know, through the obituary, but also what characteristics led to their demise. You know, was it, you know, corrupt leadership? Was it dynastic succession issues? Was it uh, a lack of, uh, you know, military prowess? You know, like, and so they can start to research that and then incorporate those into injuries. So like if... You know, your empire fell because of dynastic succession issues like Alexander the Great. He died. His kids were too young. The empire got diced up by his generals. You got Ptolemaic Egypt. You got the Sassanids and the Parthenians. You know, they can show that by having the person's head cut off because, you know, the head's gone. There's no more, mm-hmm. um, you know, leadership. So, you know, it's, it's a really cool activity. And then you can have the discussion in class about what are the patterns? What are the similarities about why these empires rose to power, what are the similarities and why they fell apart. But those those are two really high-impact lessons that kids come back at year after year, and they're like, I remember that. Like, I remember that. And do you, like, put them up in the classroom? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be... I would get lost on the walls just, like, looking at how they interpret it. I think that would be... Well, and one of the things that I do is I change the year... Because that's such a... That's an activity, it doesn't matter where, when. Right. You could do it any time period. And so I alternate the time periods that I do it so that I can use the examples for the previous year for the next year without giving them the answers to what they're going to be looking at. So this year, we did it on uh, the Gunpowder Empires, which is originally what it was created for. The Mughal, the Safavid, and the Ottoman Empire. Strong land-based empires. But then I'm going to use, I could use those examples for the classical era and somebody could do it on Greece and Rome and another group. So right. it's good to have those examples to model of strong work for kids. Okay. Going back to kind of the some of the issues, why might people see this change that's coming as as a detriment to the classroom, especially students being Rittner being the most diverse school district in the state? Like you said, there's no one demographic that makes up the entire majority of the population. Mm-hmm. How is this extremely diverse course going to affect what you do and what and how other teachers might approach it? I feel as though a lot of high school teachers go into teaching because they have a strong love for their subject. And so people want to teach world history and they want to teach the stuff that comes from, you know, the Neolithic Revolution on. You know, they have a love of the subject and they want to share that love with students. And when you cut the course in half, there's a lot of things that people love to teach. They love to go over with kids. And now you're saying, okay, we're not going to be doing that anymore. You know, that's really difficult, especially when a lot of what a teacher has to focus on is the skills that kids need to be successful in class. There's a, everybody has those subjects that, you know, they love the actual content. And so I feel like there's a lot of teachers that really enjoy the topics that fall into time periods one and three. Okay. It might not be the Neolithic Revolution, but it's certainly things like Greece and Rome, um, looking at the dynasties of China, 
you know the 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 kingdoms in West Africa. Absolutely. You know, and and there's a lot of rich history there that people enjoy teaching. The other aspect of it is is what kids are going to not get from the course now that we're negating those three uh, time periods. One is, and I know they're trying to find a way to incorporate this still, is that most of the world's religions were created around time period two. You know, um, you know, this, you know, other than Judaism and uh, Hinduism, uh, you know, Shinto, th- you know, those religions are carryovers from time period one. Most of the world's religions are going to be coming out of time period two. So there's a lot of context of what is going on in time periods four, five, and six that now they're not going to be getting because those time periods are gone. And a lot of the parts of the world that are subjugated peoples after time period uh, four and five, they have a rich history that's no, no longer being discussed. Right. You know, and I know there's a number of videos out there on YouTube uh, discussing this issue of, of people learning their history. And if it's not in taught in schools... We need to kind of question why that's occurring. And, you know, the big push here is to have this not be a a Eurocentric, a European-centered course. We want kids to get exposure to their culture that's not found in most courses today. And AP World History has been that beacon. It's been the the place where kids can get the information about their heritage pre-subjugation, pre-slavery, pre-colonialism. And imperialism, and and now they're not going to be getting that. You know, it's it's essentially a rise of Europe course. You yeah, know? and it's not so much that you're not going to talk about it, and that if they do take pre AP, they will talk about it and they will teach it. But the whole point of taking AP World History is that you have that ability to receive that college credit for it. It looks great on transcripts mm-hmm. and things like that, and so they're not even going to put what's in pre-AP on the test so it almost makes it sound like that culture doesn't matter in the scope of world history yeah and if you don't if you don't teach it or I'm sorry if you don't test it you, that's essentially what you're saying is that it does not matter it doesn't warrant being tested and that's that's tragic I mean I feel like that's a terrible message to be sending to mm-hmm. people and and I realize that it's unintentional. Like, when you look at the course, it is a monster. I mean, you're talking about 10,000 years. I have three days to talk about Rome. Like, how does that do it justice? You know, it, it doesn't. So, you know, you've got to either cut the course in half, like, which is what they proposed, and I understand why they do that, or you really have a very specific set of reduced key concepts that you're going to be focusing on. You know, if we can't deal with the breadth of the course, then we got to deal with the depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with AP World History is that the depth of knowledge is, it's really deep. Like, you can't just go over things on a cursory level and expect kids to be able to to do well on the test. And if you look at the time periods that kids are struggling with the the most, it's not time periods one, two, and three. They're getting that information. They're doing really well on those time periods. It's time periods five and six where the time zone, uh, the time periods get shorter, mm-hmm. but the amount of information gets really deep. And I feel as though you know one possible solution would be that we would reduce the key concepts for those areas. You know, can we reduce the amount that kids need to know? We already know that they're not doing well on those questions. They're the lowest questions uh, that kids you know performing on. And so, if we could reduce those key concepts, we could 
focus more of it, our attention on the stuff that that you kind of zero in on what they need to know from those time periods. Because that is one of the hard parts about teaching AP World History is that you have those 10,000 years, and then like you were talking about earlier, you could, their essay question could be, it could be over the Silk Road, it could be over about, you know, Western African civilizations, it could be about, you know, Pizarro or, or whatever. It could be about any breadth of things Whereas you have American history, which covers about 350 years, because sh- you guys, do they start, you start, like, founding, like, Columbus? Yeah, so AP U.S. history starts with 1491, okay. so, you know, the year before Columbus, and it ends with present day. Okay, so the breadth of it is, is less so, and so you, there's not as many variables in there as there are with AP with AP World. Yeah. You just you're talking about now again, that's where they you can tinker with things because right. with with only five hundred years of history or five hundred and thirty, I don't know right. what my math is, but um, with five hundred and thirty years of history compared to ten thousand, you're like, how can they fill a full year? Well, you go much deeper into things. You know, you have to, to know much more about the specific names and dates and and the causes and effects. You know, when they talk about skills, you know, there's four historical thinking skills that you could be tested on. Not only the the amount of techniques for writing the essays and the short answer questions. So, you know, you have it's nice that they've lined up the skills between AP World, AP US and AP Euro. But just the sheer number of things that they could possibly ask you questions on is out of this world. It's, it's crazy. So how your ideal world, you're creating um, the test, which I know sounds, sounds big, but ideally, what would you suggest that we could do to, I know you sort of talked about it a little bit, but both mitigate that issue uh, of the, the length and breadth of, of the course um, and still teaching students about their diverse cultures. So that's, I mean, that's really my biggest solution is just reducing the number of key concepts or really focusing in on specific topics in all six time periods. Reducing specifically the number of key concepts that kids have to have for time periods five and six. Okay. Um, now, technically, it's only three and four. So there's four uh, key concepts for time period five. And there's three key concepts for time period six. But what they include as what's possible for being tested in those time periods is a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And, and like we said, I mean, that's, those are the time periods where kids are struggling the most on um, the test. And so if we can reduce that and still allow for time periods one and two and three to be included on the test, I think that's probably the best, the best uh, way to go about things. The other thing that, I'm consi- that I would consider would be to look at the skills that we're requiring kids to be able to, to accomplish. You know, the kids need to be able to write at a college level short answer questions. They need to be able to do long essay questions, DBQ essays. And not only that, they need to really be able to interpret historical evidence. You've got any number, well, every multiple choice question is based on a document now. So there's a chart, there's a graph, there's a passage, there's a... Right a picture that kids are are being asked to interpret and answer historical questions on. So I feel as though there's a way that we could reduce the amount of skill skills that we're asking kids to focus on and to be able to know how to do 
while still maintaining the amount of information that that we would like them to get. You know, I don't think necessarily cutting the course in half is a viable option for many school districts. Right. You have to pay to offer a pre-AP class because you can't just brand something as an AP class. Technically, you could brand it as like an honors course, but you wouldn't be able to call it pre-AP. And then most schools are not going to be able to change their scope and sequence. There's an, uh, a lot of work that goes into changing what you offer and when you offer it. You know, we went from 11th grade U.S. to 9th grade U.S., and the number of kids that fell in between grade levels, you know, these juniors still need to take the freshman. Mm-hmm. It was just a nightmare, and it took yeah. years to kind of get things to a new program. So to just flip it and say, now pre-AP US is going to be pre-AP world, and they'll get US in 11th grade, it just doesn't, it would screw, it's like a, it's a, a, a wrench in the gears, right. so to speak. And at Rittner this year, I noticed because I was going through and I, I coached baseball and so I, I would go through and I'd have to check grades for kids. And I went through and I made like a list of what, what classes that people have and so I can like keep track of their teachers or whatever and keep talk, contact if I need to. And there are like at least half a dozen other pre-AP courses, biology, chemistry, pre-AP, college advanced algebra you know the amount of classes that schools have to offer these days just to brand it as AP like you said yeah. it's just tremendous and to add another one would really sort of kind of mess things up so it's the first AP course that's really offered to sophomores and so what they get from us is not only um, an idea of the t- the world and how to do you know historical things and but they also get an idea of how to operate in an AP course. So okay. there's a lot of study skills that have to be taught. There's a lot of like, hey, this textbook you're actually going to have to read this thing, you know. Um, and and it's really difficult because a lot of AP kids their sophomore year have been able to kind of fly by the seat of their pants and and be successful in most gen ed classes. And so this is the first course where you actually are like, no, you can be very, very smart and fail my class. You can you can be an A-plus student and get a D. Rachel is going to kill me for this, but her only B that she ever got in high school was in an AP U.S. history class. And so she hates history to this day because it was the one <laughs> class that she didn't get made. I think she went, she, I don't, I can't remember if she was first. She was definitely top three and she went down to like 11th because she got a, a B in AP U.S. history. That's too funny. So, well, and, 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 uh, here, I'll, I'll make Rachel feel better. I'll embarrass myself. I wanted to take AP U.S. history when I was in high school and they would not let me because of my grades. So yeah, so so they would not allow me to. And now, what am I doing? I'm teaching AP World and AP US History. So, well, thank you, Alex, so much for for taking the time. I wish you a tremendous amount of luck at the uh, the middle school. Thank you. Um, I'm going to need it. I hope the, I hope the learning curve is not as <laughs> as curvy as, as as you think it might be. So, thank you again so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. you. Thank you, Alex, for joining me on the podcast. 
It is just good for my soul to sit down and talk to another history teacher about all the things going on in history. Thank you for taking the time to talk about what I believe and many other people in education believe to be a big problem in the changing landscape of education. Friday, activist, writer, speaker, and host of the Rock the Schools podcast, Citizen Stewart, will be joining me. Be sure to tune in for that discussion. Go check out the blog that I wrote on educatorscape.com about not letting the little things in life get in the way of the fun things. If you have not yet subscribed to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and CastBox, go ahead and do so. I hope everybody has a great Wednesday. Educator out.